Welcome to this special edition of the Golf Central Podcast presented by Callaway Golf. I'm Lav, soon to be joined by Rex, and today we are unveiling our number one storyline of the year as voted on by, well, us. Us. Over at GolfChannel.com, and you'll never guess what it is. It is the number one story, the golf landscape forever altered by the emergence of Live Golf. We'll give you our insights and analysis on how this happened, why it happened, and where these two warring sides go from here. But first, Callaway has developed their longest irons ever in the Rogue ST line. These irons are breaking ground with a high-strength 450 AI face cup that's never been seen before in the industry. Now, Callaway has continued to push innovation through their patented urethane microspheres and have massively increased their precision tungsten weighting. The Rogue ST lineup is available in four options to suit every type of player, including the Rogue ST Max for incredible speed, forgiveness, and performance. They're available now, and for more information, visit CallawayGolf.com. Rex, really no surprise here. Scotty Scheffler, number five. Cameron Smith, number four. Tiger Woods, shockingly, number three. And Roy McIlroy, stepping up and speaking out was number two. So it's really no surprise that we have arrived here on the precipice of what could have been disaster with the PGA Tour and Live Golf Warring 12 months ago. Was there any way you saw the elite men's game in the shape that it is right now? Uh, before I get to that, and you, you could have set that up better, actually. You could have teased it. We'll tell you what the most important story of the year is, and then you've done the read. And then you have to get, you've got to get better at this. It's so obvious. It's so obvious what it could it's have been. So we, had, we hadn't talked it, about Live Golf yet. We've, 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 we've thrown little bits and pieces here. There was the Cam Smith. There was Tiger. You kind of taking a leadership role for the PGA Tour. There was Rory uh, fiercely defending the PGA Tour. But the actual Live Golf story of 2022, like – of, of course it was going to be. Of course it was going to be the number one spot. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Cam Smith because I'm responding to, and this was from Hector R. Fernandez. I think he he, uh, he popped on you as well. And the and I think what he's responding to is who was the player, the male player of the year. And we, I think we talked about Rory, Scotty, and Cam Smith. And he said, no, exclamation point. Smith is, but of course you will dismiss Cameron Smith because of his relationship with Liv Goff. So, you know you what, tour loyalists. You, tour you did not listen the to the pod, Hector. Had no. you listened to the pod, you would have gotten all the love you wanted don't from just, Cam Smith. Don't just read the headline, Hector. That's right. Be better than that, Hector. Uh, no, it, it's absolutely zero surprise that this is it. I've never seen – it was funny. I was in uh, the Hero World Challenge last week, and on Saturday it was actually comical. I, had, I wrote a column about uh, a controversy. I wrote a column about a controversy, and the controversy was mud on a golf ball. And I, and I giggled throughout doing the entire column because it was so nonsensical to me that this is where we are in the world. Like all of these things that we've had to write about and address and sort of, you know, try to wrap our minds around. Now, all of a sudden, we, we go back to those real controversies, the stuff that matters, mud on a golf ball. I could not have been happier to write that column. I got to be honest with you. I'm in the NBC Sports studio right now. This is I'm not in my traditional. Give us spot. a look see, by the way. I know this is a this is a visual. I mean, an audio medium by and large. But, but give us a look see around your green room, not just a green room. Your green room. Nope, because I have my laptop precariously positioned atop a garbage bin. Spin it around. Uh, nope, because it could fall off, and then uh, this audio visual medium uh, would come crashing down. So I, I would have taken you into the newsroom, Rex, but I did see the great Jaime Diaz, one of the all-time great writers and Dog. now a contributor uh, on 
Golf Channel, and I was talking to him what we're working on, uh, things we're talking about. He said, "Yeah, you know, we're I'm we do some stuff on distance here as we as we look forward to to January and and, and February." <laughs> In, in advance of the, the governing bodies potentially making some decisions here uh, about the distance that the golf ball is traveling these days. I said, ah, remember when that was like the biggest thing that we were talking about? You're talking about Mud at Hero. We're talking about distance. But no, Live Golf has absolutely overtaken everything that we have worked on this year. Now, Rex, this kind of the, the, the origins, the, the roots have been sown for this live golf issue dating a number of years ago. You think back to 2020 and Roy McIlroy uh, in Mexico saying that he wanted to be on the right side of history, but it really came to the forefront at Riviera, the Genesis Invitational in February. You and I were both there. Take us back to your, your recollections of that day, what it, what it really seemed like uh, the, the game was on the brink of, of being changed forever. And I'm not going to refer to it as Live Golf anymore. And this was this is absolutely no disrespect, but at, there was a filing last week in the lawsuit. Uh, it's it, a different lawsuit, the one that's in the Middle District of Florida now, and it kind of goes back to the origins of when the PIF, the Public Investment Fund of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, sort of started coming up with this plan that they want to get their foot in golf in a bigger way, and they called it Project Wedge. And I don't know why, but I was so taken with because it's going to drive know. a wedge through the game. Maybe, Ooh. or maybe wedge is in, you know, maybe it's, you know, they're hitting wedge shots. I don't know. But I, I'm like, this is funny. Like, there is someone sitting at a desk in, in, in the PIF of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, you know, concocting this master plan, and it's going to be, yes, Project Wedge. Imagine That's how much money that person made to come up with the name lots, of Project Wedge. Lots. So, uh, yeah, the earliest vestiges of Project Wedge came up probably in 2018, but you're right. It seemed everything coalesced in February in Los Angeles. At Riviera, it was surreal. I, you and I have talked about this before on the pod, and just walking down that big hill behind Riviera down to the driving range, and it's all anyone was talking about. What Phil had done in this interview with uh, um, Alan Shipnuck with the Fire Pit Collective website, and Alan had been working, was working on a book at the time that's since been published on Phil, and he ended up writing this separate story because he felt like we can go back and, and rehash that. But essentially, you got the impression that he. Phil just wanted to burn it all down. That he it, it felt that day to me that Phil is tired of all of it. He's tired of the tour side of it. He's tired of the Project Wedge side of it. He, he just wants to move on. And this is and what he came up with was this hugely inflammatory quote, saying that they're scary MFers, talking about the Saudi Arabians and Yasser, who's the governor of the PIF. He also talked about. He also took shots at Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour. Took it, shots I mean, at everyone. One, no one. No one, one was paragraph. spared. One very, very meaty, consequential paragraph. He just burned it all down. Like, all, he just burned it all down. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm done with all of it. And I just remember walking up and down the range, not even talking to players, but watching them react as they read it and saw it on their phone and sort of how this sunk in. Because now, in retrospect, a little bit we know behind the scenes of Project Wedge, it almost completely destroyed it, right, before it even got off the ground. I mean, they had to... Yasser had to come up with a decision that, okay, we're going to do this. But, man, that, that seemed like that's the day when it became real for a lot of people. The scary MFers line is obviously the one that drew all the headlines. The one that I come back to even now can, can when we, recording can we this. Use the, do we have to use MF or can we use the word no? No. Yeah, this isn't the Chris yeah. Sims podcast. We're going we're gonna to be uh, very, very PG-rated uh, on this here Golf Central podcast presented by Callaway 
golf. But but Rex, I I come back to the line where he said he was using it solely for leverage because it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to change what the PGA Tour can become, and that he wasn't even sure whether Phil Mickelson wanted Live Golf to succeed. That's why, and we're now, what, eight, nine months on from that point. Ever since Phil uttered those words, and he's claimed they were off the record, he didn't say necessarily that he was misquoted or it was out of context. He claimed that that was a private conversation. Well, private conversations still yield your true feelings on the matter. And those were Phil Mickelson's true feelings on this venture, that he didn't really want it to succeed. He just wanted to change the PGA Tour. And so from that point forward, ever since those excerpts were published, I've had a hard time viewing what Phil Mickelson says since publicly without a healthy dose of skepticism because now he's answering to new bosses – with the Golf Saudi, Live Golf, the Public Investment Fund, Greg Norman, whoever his myriad bosses are now, does he actually want this to succeed? Does he actually believe in it? Or now that the check's cleared, is it a little bit easier to stomach now that he's making uh, a reported $200 million in signing bonus? That's kind of where my head goes to nine, nine ten months on. Well, it's twofold. And and one thing is, and we've both done this long enough, that I've sat in front of Phil Mickelson in a press conference or just in a little bit more relaxed setting. He always has an agenda. That is the one thing that I've always sort of wanted to study when it came to Phil Mickelson. He didn't show up at these things just willy-nilly wanting to answer questions. And it didn't matter what you asked him. He was going to steer his answer wherever he wanted to go. And maybe sometimes that was distance and I have a new driver and I'm hitting it 10 yards further or, or fitness or whatever the case may be, whatever the subject is your for Phil in his mind was. So there is part of me that believes that it was almost orchestrated, that he knew exactly what he was doing. And it actually did put him in a position of leverage because if he, if he walked away, if he turned down the money, then that probably would have ruined it. I don't know that they could have gone forward with the players they had at that time. Everything probably would have unraveled. But I think probably in his mind, he was doing playing a negotiation game. And as you pointed out, $200 million, it probably worked. The surreal nature of the week at Riviera was, was how swift and severe the backlash was towards Phil Mickelson, who wasn't in the field, uh, we should point out. But, but what it led to, Rex, was this wave of of player announcements. They, the, the PGA tour ran players through the pre-tournament press conference schedule, uh, vowing their fealty to the PGA tour. You had players like Bryson DeChambeau and Dustin Johnson craft these statements uh, through their agents, kind of disavowing the, the Saudi tour and, and saying that they were uh, committed to the PGA tour and looked forward to committing uh, all of their time, energy and resources to that circuit. Obviously it did not, turn out that way what allowed live golf to eventually launch four months later it seems like the leadership was gung-ho on this venture whether they were going to get the mediocres as they so famously put it in the new york uh the new yorker article or not they they were they were full steam ahead with the resources behind it and i think at that point even with what phil did and even with that probably forcing a, a couple of star players to the sidelines and you know players who probably would have been on board otherwise 
it, it was a roadblock for them. But as we now have seen, I mean, it, it wasn't the roadblock. They were able to piecemeal something together, at least in the short term, play that first event. And I think that's what a lot of guys needed to see. A lot of guys who ended up making the jump, Cam Smith, probably the best example of this, he probably needed to see some sort of proof of concept. You need to hold some tournaments. You need to prove to me that you can get the top players in the world. You, can, you need to prove to me that you can get some sort of attention. Now we can sit here and debate at what level of attention those events ended up getting. But it, I think it was a significant moment. And this goes back to, I believe it was the New Yorker article where I think you referred to the mediocres, where Majed al Sarara, who is the CEO. <laughs> I mean, what a of, line. What a line. Uh, We'll take the 20 players we got, I believe, was what they had at that time. And, and I'm assuming Phil was part of that group since he was in that first. And then you, you put whatever mediocres you want and we'll move forward. And, and I immediately, my mind immediately goes to all those other players that were in that first field in, in, uh, in London. And you're like, oh, like, I, like no one wants to read that I'm a mediocre. You may know it in the back of your mind. But if you're, I don't know, I, and, and I'm not trying to... I'm not even trying to be mean here, but if you're Andy Ogletree, who was playing in that first event, you got to be like, ah, that was me. He's talking about me. Like it, that's what happened. Oh, uh, the lights just went out here. Oh, we're gonna have to. Do uh, a, a I noticed that. Uh, keep no power through this. No. Oh, here just we are. Power through it. This you is an just audio kept going in the dark. Visual medium. Uh, you're <laughs> you're in your little. I'm not even sure what that room is. Uh, and what uh, that particular chair is over your left shoulder. Uh, but you're, I don't even think Andy Ogletree would qualify as one of the mediocres. I think that's a little bit of a crying shame. I think when you when you look back to Rex, like all all the minute, all the names, what are you saying? Andy Ogletree qualifies as if he doesn't qualify as a mediocre, you're not even putting him at a mediocre level. Level? No, he had, he hadn't accomplished anything. And like credit to him, he won an Asian Tour event uh, late Jeez, in 2022. Please. But like he won the U.S. Sorry, amateur, Andy. and Andy and he disappeared. Ogletree catching strays on the year end podcast. Ouch. Apparently, I mean, you threw, you threw Andy Ogletree out. I was thinking more like a Jason Kokrak type as a mediocre, but you went all the way down uh, to Andy Ogletree. It is interesting, Rex. Like, and you, and you and I were were discussing this. We're talking to players. We're hearing a lot of the same names. And during that week at Riviera, all the names that were bandied about as being interested in Live, going to Live, um, had already signed with Live, it kind of came to fruition, did it not? I think the one kind of head fake was Brooks Kepka, and I'm sure we'll get into that once the uh, season had launched in June, but Brooks Kepka was a, I'm committed to the PGA Tour, uh, this was at the U.S. Open at Brookline, and then it literally, how dare like you ask me about this, it, but like, how dare like you a matter ask me about of this? 48 to 72 hours, he had switched, had stopped answering guys' texts and phone calls, uh, and was playing for the other team. Let's Let's diagnose Rex. The PGA Tour's response to this initial live threat. Now, there's a lot of folks who uh, were concerned, even dismayed, that Commissioner Jay Monahan had completely stiff-armed Greg Norman uh, and Golf Saudi, like wouldn't even have a conversation with them. In hindsight, that does not look to be like the best decision. But a month later, we're both at the Players' Championship, and Jay Monahan gives his kind of uh, state of the PJ Tour address on the eve of the mat, uh, excuse me, the eve of the players, and he said, "Look, our guys are interested in uh, legacy, not leverage. We're gonna uh, we're gonna look at the tradition of the PJ Tour. That's what's important to us. Like it almost seemed the second week of March that the PJ Tour viewed this live threat as dead." Dead in the water was the expression that Roy McIlroy used at Riviera. 
And it certainly seemed like Commissioner Jay Monahan carried that same tone on the eve of one of the five biggest events of the year. I think so. You know, it's funny as I was going through uh, some, some stuff in one of the lawsuits last week, and I had seen this memo before, but I just in, in the it's kind of been an, an, avalanche, an avalanche when it comes to sort of these legal challenges. They don't let up. But I actually took the time to read it, and this was in March 2020, and it was from Monahan to just specifically the board members, no one else, just the five. Well, at the time, I think it was only four player directors, and then the five independent directors on the board. And it essentially was a point by point response. Like this is what we're hearing. This is what we know that's happening, and this is how we're going to respond. Now, this memo is probably going to end up being somewhat of a of a smoking gun when it comes to the lawsuit. In <laughs> retrospect, yeah. someone's probably thinking to themselves, we probably shouldn't have written all those things down because it, it sort of reads exactly like what you would expect an antitrust a company who's trying to violate the Sherman Act would exactly write down. But I, I do find it fascinating <laughs> that their response, and, and I think I have been outspoken about this. Certainly, I know you have. When we look back, and it's been very, very easy to criticize Jay Monahan, and I guess my main criticism is, is kind of twofold. One, why didn't you just meet with them? Why didn't you meet with them when they were the PGL? It you know, almost seems irresponsible to not at least to not hear what they're proposing. Yes, and I and I still feel that way, and and I don't know, and and I the answer that the commissioner has given us, the answer that the commissioner has given me, is that there were sponsors on board for the PGA Tour without naming them. I think we can probably guess RBC is the obvious one that immediately comes to mind, who would never have allowed it. They weren't going to allow the PGA Tour to work with the PIF in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for whatever reason. It sounds to me like when it comes to RBC, and I can use that one as a perfect example because if you go back a few years. Dustin Johnson won the Saudi International twice, I believe, and Harold Varner won it once. And both those players are RBC players. And just look at their bags that week, and the RBC logo is not on their bags. So in this particular case, I can kind of see it. But still, I don't know how even Keith Pelley, he at least had a meeting with him, the famous Malta meeting, which sounds much more sinister than it probably was. But it, I think that at the, as a scene, yeah, but that was kind the, of a transformative moment, was it not? Like it the Euro- was. European tour was was veering. Which path should we go down? Should we get in bed with the Saudis, or should we form the strategic alliance with the PJ Tour? They they chose the latter. And and I still believe that Jay or someone from the tour should have met, even if it was just if it was Andy Pazder, if it was quiet, if it was in some a, sort in a of shop in Miami. Yeah, if it was in a coffee shop in Miami, you know, you just needed to have a conversation and, and find out where both sides stood. I, I'm less critical now as far as the response because you read this memo and you're like, well, they did have a plan and maybe it wasn't the best plan. I'm not quite sure what they could have done at that point for a better plan because it sounds to me like everything was sort of on board when it came to Project Wedge. But I, I would sort of turn this back on you and, and, and myself. But like neither one of us saw this coming as well. Now, Jay and the rest of those folks in Ponte Vedra are paid to see this coming. But I don't – if you and I are having this conversation just a, just a very, very scant 12 months ago, we could not have predicted what happened over the last 12 months. It would have been impossible. Our minds would not have no, gone to any of this. But the counter to that is it is not our job to know that. If, if you are no, the head can. of a billion-dollar enterprise like the PGA Tour, it is your job to know the existential threats – that exist. Like, could he have seen COVID coming? I'm talking about uh, Jay Monet and the PGA Tour. Absolutely no. not. And I think everyone would applaud the PGA Tour for how they handled that crisis and the return to golf, one of the first major sports to do so. And I think everyone would argue uh, that it was highly successful in doing so. But this had been 
at least bandied about, perhaps, you know, in hushed tones for the past four or five years. And oh, so yeah. going to back have, to 2018, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't just have talking points for this. You can't like it sounds really great to say uh, we're interested in in legacy, not leverage. This was not a this was not a PR battle. I think that became uh, blatantly obvious when when players started signing for 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 nine figure paydays. Like they were not going to be dissuaded by the sports washing argument that I think most people would be morally opposed to. It, they they didn't have a sound plan to to combat that aspect. It was it was just well and and like I'll, a, I'll like, a PR like these bullet points weren't weren't talking points. These were action items. Uh, that were in this memo, things that they needed to do and things that they had already done going forward. So to be clear, and again, I'm not going to going to sit here in December of 2022 and defend the tour. Like clearly things were not handled well on both sides. I, I mean, they, they, if you want to blame someone, it's the Bono line from YouTube. Throw a rock in, your, in the air. You'll hit someone guilty. But in this particular case, I, reading that over again and sort of digesting it, I don't think that Jay and the rest of the team up in Ponte Vigia were given enough credit. They they tried. I'm not quite sure what they could have However, done outside of, outside of talking. It, exactly. Talk publicly because in March, okay, Liv had been, just been pushed to the back burner. Rory's calling it dead in the water. I think most reasonable people thought that this threat had sort of been neutralized. Had Jay Monahan come out at the Players' Championship, outlined what this path forward looks like, for the PGA Tour, made a more persuasive argument about why this is the best tour, other than just legacy and tradition and all these talking points. If he'd if he'd showed like, look, this is how much the guys are going to begin to make, and you can still play at all these fantastic events in the PGA Tour, I think perhaps the environment would have been different. Maybe Dustin Johnson wouldn't have made the leap. Maybe Brooks Koepka wouldn't have made the leap. Maybe the Abe answers and Carlos Ortiz's. Uh, and the Joaquin Neiman's wouldn't have made the leap. I don't know. You know, that's mm. we're just speculating at this point, ten months on. But but had he had he verbalized some of these plans as opposed to keeping them inside Ponte Vedra, I, I just I just wonder whether the outcome could have potentially been different because at least from the outside, it looked like a lot of inaction from the PJ Tour, did it not? Uh, it did, and to your point, and this is this is only going to fuel what you're saying in this particular case, of all those bullet points, it it's not Jay or anyone else on his staff that ended up coming up with the solution where we're headed right now. It was Tiger and, R- and Rory, and it was at the meeting in Wilmington, Delaware. Like, let's be very, very clear, and whoever else was, was in that meeting and in their camp that sort of came up with whatever concept we're going to have going forward, the 12 elevated events, the elevated purses, how the PIP is going to define the top players, like the things that they've done to reward and compensate the top players weren't driven from Ponte Vedra. And I think that's very telling. Greg Norman remained undeterred and vowed to Defiant. launch this inaugural season after all. And it did so the first week of June over in London. It played opposite uh, the RBC Canadian Open the week before the U.S. Open. Do you remember, Rex, six months ago, what your initial expectations for this leave season were and how quickly uh, into this first season did they begin to shift? Well, I don't know that I ever had expectations. I mean, there was a curiosity. I remember sitting in my office and I think I, we, we, we had a show on at that point. So we were in, in, in I, I believe either golf today or golf central was on live and we were kind of reacting to what was happening in London. So I, I remember watching it. There was a level of curiosity. Like, I don't know what it was going to look like. It was going to be a different product. It was going to, 
they didn't want to do a 72-hole PGA Tour event. So there was a level of curiosity. Now, how it's changed, I don't think anyone can deny that the product that they end up feeling, fielding and the eight events that they had, it's pretty good. Like We can sit here and nitpick and say that we didn't like this or we didn't like that, but you look at the field and you look at the product that they point, pointed out. I was at the Doral event when they finished their season. It's a good product. Like You may not like it. It may not be your brand of vodka. That's fine. That's up to you. But it's a good product. So from that first event in London to where they landed, I, I, I think I came around to a begrudged, okay, like the, they have their thing. PGA Tour has, has, has their thing. This is going to be decided in the court of public opinion. It's going to be decided by what you, the viewer, want to watch. What do you think about the roster of players that they were able to assemble? Dustin Johnson was the first big name to do so. And, I mean, that was a little bit of a, a, a stunning revelation. You, you figured, you know, the, the Lee Westwoods, the Ian Poulters, obviously Phil Mickelson would all be drawn to this. But but, but DJ, I mean, he's a, a generational great, future Hall of Famer, a lifetime member of the PGA Tour, two-time major champion, and, you know, kind of a down year in 2021. But, boy, at the end of 21 year, like, this dude's, best golf might be ahead of it and, it and it just seemed at that time with that signing like why is he throwing it all away like why is he just coasting in that do you think that dj's decision to join live was eye-opening for the remaining players that we saw follow suit whether it was cameron smith or whether it was joaquin neiman or now the reported four to seven uh, who are set to join for 2023. Do you think his was kind of like the transformative moment? Uh, it might have added a, le- a level of legitimacy that probably wasn't there before. Absolutely, because you're right. This is a generational talent. We've talked about this before on the podcast. That uh, seems like the one guy that everybody misses on a PGA Tour range is DJ. And look, <laughs> you and I didn't see that. Like uh, Those of us on the outside, we just kind of giggled because we always were like, ah, oh, DJ. DJ is being DJ with some silly stuff sometimes. However, he is truly missed on – I mean, I was talking with players last week at the Hero World Challenge about this. As far as the, the players go, I have found that one size does not fit all. Everybody had a different reason. I think you did a really good job of articulating this early, saying that Bryson DeChambeau was never going to play 20 years on the PGA Tour mm-hmm. or, or anywhere else for that matter. That's not the way he is wired. He's wired to, to try to dig into something as hard as he can for a very, very short intense sprint and then move on to something else there's going to be something bright and shiny that comes up in three years from now that Bryson's going to want to go to and in this particular case he got generational wealth I mean I don't know what his number was I think 130 million or something along those lines he, he was rewarded with generational wealth in, a, in essentially a pretty short-term contract I believe everybody signs five-year deals if not a little bit less and now he has that luxury now look he he lost a lot of stuff in the transaction, and I would say DJ is a little bit different because, let's face it, DJ was never going to play into his 50s. He wants to probably cash in and then go spend time on his boat in South Florida. I mean, everybody had a different idea of what they were doing. Certainly, we've talked about Richard Bland and Lee Westwood and Harold Varner, and so everyone had a their own specific reason for doing this. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a, a, a good point, and when you look at the initial s- roster of players that they were able to secure it was almost like a a band of misfits right like it was players who had either worn out their welcome on the pga tour they weren't particularly friendly with uh their peers on the pga tour they were either past their prime undeveloped like it was it was kind of 
cobbling together all of those guys at one place. And then obviously DJ, well, Phil was the headliner because uh, it, just an enormous legendary figure in the game. But, but DJ was like, here's our guy. He is a great player, still one of the best players in the world, 37 years old at the time. Like, this is a guy who can play here for three or four years. He's going to give us instant credibility because DJ, everyone knows him. He just won a major a year and a half ago. Like, this is the guy that we have to hitch our wagon to. I think that was huge to get it off the ground, to get people at least even remotely interested, not to throw Andy Ogletree under the bus again since you mentioned him. But, like, if it's – So many strays. If it's Andy Ogletree and 47 of his friends, like no one is going to watch that. But DJ at least had a little bit of curiosity into his decision why he possibly could have done this besides just the $150 million paycheck. Cam Smith, though, was the one that I think could have the most significant impact because this was a player who won the Players' Championship with his uh, very large – what do you call him, Rex? That Cam Smith used to Cajones. win the Players Championship. Yes, uh, he won. Uh, he was, yes, yes, he was. He was there. He was in the final group of Scotty Scheffler at the Masters. Uh, he had the duel with John Rahm at the beginning of the year. Like this was looking like Cam Smith's breakout year, and then you get to the Open Championship, and he comes home in thirty at the Old Course in St Andrews, chases down Roy McIlroy, and wins the Claret Jug for his first major championship. This is Cam Smith's breakout year. And what does he do? He commits to live golf and his future. What was your reaction to that move? And what's the trickle-down effect of it? And what are the repercussions of a player who is in the, having the best season of his life with only uh, more accolades and accomplishments to gain taking this, what I would call, a calculated risk? Oh, it's very much calculated risk because we're assuming that the established ecosystem that they're always going to push back on this. Now, that being said, I would expect him to be able to play the majors just like anyone else would because of what he accomplished this year on the PGA. He's Tour. exempt. I think he's, he, exe- he's exempt yeah. in, into the open until he's 60. He's got five years for the other majors. Five, I think. Same. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I, and I don't see the majors. That's a different subject. I don't see the majors changing those criteria. Number one, they don't have to, this is all about the world ranking. And number two, I don't think they want the shade. I mean, look, we've seen the avalanche of legal nonsense that can come down on you. If you decide to make a very, very bold move. And I just don't think any of the major championship organizations want to do that. However, in Kim's place, Spot. I, I think we had heard about it for so long, and we. I think, at least personally, I became desensitized to the idea that he was leaving, because I have looked, and I guess the counter is we can also sit here and talk about all the rumors that didn't come to fruition. Certainly, Hideki Matsuyama is the one that immediately pops into mind because I'm thinking to myself, and I think we've discussed this, like in Hideki. I mean, Project Wedge isn't just getting a top player; they are getting an entire region of the world, and so you would think that he was a priority for them. Just, just for no other reason than he could become the face of sort of that entire Asian market for them. And you know they, they want a team from Japan or wherever else they can sort of leverage this on. So in that case, I, I think which we ended up with by the time, at least in my mind, at the time that Cam left, which was just after the Tour Championship, I, I felt like you kind of knew who was on one side and who was on the other. I say that, and before this recording comes out, there could be a bombshell and someone could leave and I would be shocked. And I'm sure that there are four or five more players that are just poised to go right now. But it seems like the battle lines are so clear now. And it, and it seemed like that when Cam went. You make a great point, And it might be a little bit of a peek behind the curtains. But this was one of the most challenging years 
I think journalistically that I've had, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree as well, just kind of like sifting through the misinformation. It was the, it was the first time that golf has had a rumor mill and like folks love this with like the NFL major league baseball. Like it's, it's the winter meetings now, uh, the, the NBA and kind of the trade discussions and those rumors and the speculation and the sources, like all this stuff. This is, this finally happened in golf. What was your experience like journalistically, like avoiding the misdirection and, and trying to get to the heart of the matter? Because it, by the, by the time the Cam Smith stuff came out, like I, I, I'd i heard it all about every single player. Every single player is interested. Every single player has a number. I just sat there and waited for the live golf release to come out to announce the player signings. Because I, it, at that point, I didn't know who or what to believe anymore. Uh, I would say, and you're right, they, we love the transaction. And no, at no time in the history of golf has that been more proven more thoroughly than this year. Because you're right, this was all about the transaction. It had nothing to do with the golf. The 54 holes, the team aspect, it had nothing to do with that. It's just we needed to see who the next wave. And we're still waiting for the next wave of players. I think for me, and, and this probably came across as I was writing it, it sort of that misdirection. And look, Project Wedge is very, very good or they proved themselves to be very, very good at sort of continuing the narrative. And they just let these players drip out one at a time. And again, we, I think we talked about this. It's about, trying to simulate the idea of momentum and they're not going to announce stature all four. for the PGA Tour. I mean, all yeah. 48 at one time. It was going to be, we're going to do it over 48 weeks. It's going to be one player. They didn't do it that way, but like, that was the concept. Like, we're just going to continue. It's, we're going to be a headline every single day. And that, of course, is going to drive people at the PGA Tour crazy. I guess for me, it came to the head... It came to a head at, uh, and it wasn't at the Rowell. It was at, uh, I believe, one of the events either in Saudi Arabia or in Asia where the, the world ranking equation came up again and pretty much everybody was singing off the same page for Live Golf, which is, oh, no, we'll get world ranking points, and if we don't, then something's wrong with the system. And I guess my problem with that was just because you, you can't say something over and over again and expect it to be true. That's sort of the problem with society. That's the problem with journalism over, I would say, the last five or six years, is just because you say something loudly and over and over again, that doesn't make it true. In this particular case, we know that not to be true. There is a standard to get included into the World Golf ranking, and Project Wedge has not met that standard. And maybe they do eventually. Maybe they are allowed in. But that's when sort of I had had enough. Like saying something loud and over and over again doesn't make it true. Just stop it. I love your continued bit that you're just going to continue to call this Project Wedge uh, and not – live i'm not even meaning it disrespectfully to be clear like i'm not i'm not doing this to be i just no like i thought it was comical i thought it was so funny that someone at the pif in saudi arabia the kingdom of saudi arabia was sitting in a cubicle and they're like hey what are we going to call this and it's a project uh, wedge it could have been project putter project wedge biggest mediocres uh there's plenty of good ideas coming out of those brainstorming sessions so that's that's the backstory rex let's let's look at the state of things Right now, and I think you can break this into three different categories. We're sitting here, we're recording this on December 6th. This is getting published uh, the second week of December. Let's first touch on the antitrust lawsuit Live Golf has engaged in with the PJ Tour, and then the PJ Tour has countersued. You have covered this more extensively than anyone, thank God, because I didn't want to have to dabble into it. However, what, how do things stand at this point with a trial date, tentatively set at least, for January 2024. Uh, I mean, that's, I think that's wildly ambitious. And I think we're going to, that's probably going to come to a head more sooner rather than later. I, it was set for January 2024. 
specifically in that court, because I think the judge was trying to be proactive and saying that either you get this date or we're start we're looking at 2025. Like it's a very crowded calendar in this particular district district. And I think the judge was just trying to lay the ground rules like you guys tell me what you want. And of course, Project Wes was motivated to move this along as quickly as possible for a lot of different reasons. So they wanted an ex- expedited case. But the agreement was, okay, we can do the expedited schedule. And I know that doesn't sound a year and a half is not expedited in many people's minds. We can do it as long as you guys play nice in discovery. And at least early in the process, they're not playing nice. So there's no way we end up in January. I would be shocked if that goes to trial in January 2024. Tiger Woods, Roy McIlroy, they have at least uh, left open the possibility that there could be some sort of reconciliation, some sort of resolution, some sort of compromise, Rex, between these two warring bodies. Tiger Woods even used a legal term. Uh, kudos to him. Two points stay. for Tiger Woods using stay. In other words, uh, postpone or pause the legal action. Uh, Tiger is so is, good about picking up those. those, those loves it. Like the, loves the, the one. Lingo. Uh, yeah, and he did it every time there was like a back issue or every time he, he didn't activate his glutes. That was one of the – like someone just throws something into a conversation and, and Tiger just seemed to glom onto it. What do you think, Rex, the chances are – and this is pure speculation, of course, which is what we love to do uh, here on this podcast. What do you Reckless. think the chances are that we even get to the point where, look, let's pause the litigation. Let's see if we can hammer out a point. Uh we had I had a colleague, I'm not going to call him out uh, because he probably wouldn't want me to do that, but I had a colleague who brought up a really interesting scenario. What if, and we know now that Rory and Tiger are very much you know, reading off the same page. Like They both pretty much said the exact same thing, that as long as the litigation goes away and Greg Norman leaves, then at least we can have a conversation. I thought it was very, very significant because, look, they, have, they are the two spokespeople. They're, they're driving the boat. And if these two are saying that there's a chance to talk, I think that's the first glimmer of hope that I've seen in this entire process. But this colleague of ours brought up the idea that the one thing we do know about the Saudis is they do not like to be told no. And in this particular case, for you to stand there publicly and say, okay, fire that guy, and he's their handpicked guy, in some twisted way, they may actually be playing sort of the reverse game here. And they know that by telling them to get rid of Greg, they won't get rid of Greg. And the idea being that as long as Greg's still in charge, that means that someone who's better at their job doesn't step in and get that job. I thought that was deep state stuff, but it's interesting. It, that's certainly uh, an interesting uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, I, I did think, Rex, when you, when, when you saw that, the report from uh, our buddy James Corrigan in The Telegraph with uh, Mark King being primed, a former uh, TaylorMade executive, current Taco Bell CEO, uh, being primed mm. to take over Norman. <laughs> I know. It was kind of, mm. oh, so delicious. Uh, primed to take over Norman's spot uh, as the leader of Live Golf. That seemed like a plant from the Live Golf side. Did it not to sort of uh, undermine yes. to undermine Norman's credibility? Like this, his job status has been rumored for months. It doesn't seem like the amount of times that he has uh, put his put his cleat in his mouth over the past six months. You would you would think he would be on borrowed time with Live Golf. You put in a professional businessman to run the operation at that point. I, th- I think Greg Norman has served his purpose. He was he's a uh, controversial figure he's a divisive figure he's a global figure well-known figure in the world of golf he has the connections uh he has uh the contacts but at this point he's got the players that he wants to get they're going to get four to seven more whatever the case may be by the end of 2022 do you think norman's in this for the long haul 
or is he just kind of a figurehead at this point? Because he, at, at least at this point, to hear Tiger and Roy publicly, Norman's the sticking point. If Norman goes, okay, then, well, Norman, then perhaps we can reach lawsuit, a compromise. Yes. Yeah, uh, Norman in the lawsuit. I think probably the bigger deal actually on the Project Wed side would be the lawsuit. Because if you do stay it, which is the right word for Tiger Woods to use, again, someone gave him the right lingo. Lingo on that one. Then you're essentially kicking the can. So you're pausing a process that they want to go as quickly as possible. So I think there's a longer shot for them to actually stay the lawsuit because it doesn't behoove them. As long as you can keep moving forward in the lawsuit, there is an opportunity that you may come out and not need a conversation, that you may come out and the players may end up with world ranking points, and they may end up being able to play the PGA Tour if that's what they choose to do. When it comes to Norman, no. I, I, don't, I don't think we're having this conversation 12 months from now with him being still the CEO for all the reasons we pointed out. And we have said this, that if ha, imagine had they had someone competent in that job and like I, we just gave like eight events that field what they ended up doing they was professionally run tournaments like man like where they started like that that's an impressive jump they made a big leap in 2022 what if you had someone competent in the ceo job and and hmm. i mean it sounds like we're i'm dragging greg norman but I, I think his track record when it comes to businesses speaks for itself i don't have to be overly critical on that i would just suggest you go google it and you can see it for yourself he, he's not proven himself to be a very successful business person and in Greg's defense, I found most professional athletes aren't very good business people. They think they are is the problem. They think just because they can hit a golf ball that they understand business and every decision they make is going to be the right decision. It's At some point, it's going to be a tipping point. They're going to have to, to cut bait, as we say here in the South, and just go with someone who is competent and understands business and can move this forward. I would say the most important part of that is got to get a television deal. They need two things, television deal domestically in the United States and world ranking points. World ranking points they're going to have to wait for, but it seems to me that Norman has not been able to secure that TV deal, and that's a problem. So that's what I wanted to get into here, because when you talk about Transition. compromise, resolution, whatever – whatever word you want to use from the PJ tour side, you understand it. Tiger Woods made the point at the hero world challenge that if the Saudis spent $2 billion in 2022, what's keeping them from spending four or $5 billion to get the players that they really want and to get this thing in a position that they feel could be profitable in the future. The PJ tour cannot win that battle. And so potentially yielding some space in the golf calendar or reintegrating some of these stars like Dustin Johnson, Cam, Cam Smith, and Brooks kept going back into the fold. Like, yeah, I understand that from a business perspective. But if you're live golf and you're sitting here at the end of 2022, why would you necessarily be interested in a compromise at this point, Rex? Because, okay, when you're, when you're sitting at this point, you don't have world ranking points. You don't have any corporate sponsorships. You don't have a television deal. But you can. You, there's, at least, there's at least talk of maybe buying time on a network the lives bid through like the Minotaur, that's like the workaround to get world ranking points. You would think that would be heard before mm -hmm. its official application, which was submitted back in July. Uh, corporate sponsorships when players own their own franchises. Uh, there's there's talk about how that's going to be built out in the coming year. To me, right now, end of 2022, I'm not sure why Live would be in a position to want to compromise. Sure, 12 months from now. If we get to a point where you still don't have a television deal, you still don't have any corporate sponsorships, you still you were denied world ranking points, then yeah, it, it, it might be time to say this is a failed venture. Golf Saudi folks uh, seem hell-bent on making sure this is successful, making sure 
this becomes a profitable business and the future of the game. Do you, are you aligned with that sort of thinking? Because to me, if 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 you're live leadership, it's premature to even go down that route right now. Yeah, I mean, let, let's assume it's two billion dollars is the number supposedly that's been invested in this. There's no, nothing stopping them from doing that again next year or even more. Like that, if you look at, they're the second largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. It's three quarters of a trillion dollars. So you do the math. Two, $2 billion dollars is not a big dent based it's on pocket what, lint. It's, it's, it's pocket yes, lint. It's, they find that in the in the seat cushions of the Mercedes Benz. So I, I don't think the money is going to be the issue. And I think as long as you continue to see traction, and I'm talking about as long as the PIF and Yasser continues to see traction, as long as he continues to see events being played, attention being played, headlines across the globe being talked about. I mean, this was going to be, I think I just saw yesterday that it was the story of the year for Sports Business Journal as far as sports business. As long as they keep seeing that, and look, there's there's pushback. Like we're talking about sports washing, sports washing. Saudis don't seem to care. All they want to do is get in the game, and that's what they've done. I see absolutely no reason for them to scale back, turn around, or turn off. They they have gotten their foot in the door, like it or not, and they're I mean they're not going anywhere because they have the bottomless pit of money. They have the players they want, and they have some sort of model to go off of now. The world ranking decision you would think we would receive it sometime in 2023. The Minotaur loophole. That decision would come before the official application. One would, that would be think, such a small, small. I mean, I, I know that where they're thinking on this, but it would be. We, but I'm saying, like, an, an actual decision system, would be. Yeah. But an I mean, actual, you're just but not an actual going decision. To get ranking points. Yes, it, and I think even with as we've seen now with the official World Golf ranking, the changes they've made to that, even if live golf events do uh, do get approved for world ranking points, like they're significantly harmed by having a limited field, um, and so. It depends how far these players fall out, whether they need to go on absolute tear in order to make any sort of traction in the world ranking. So that's the live side, Rex. How about the PGA Tour side? Because as, as, at least from the outside, it seemed like Jay Monahan and company uh, were inactive and perhaps not forward-thinking enough uh, in combating this threat. They did make some pretty significant changes, at least by the end of the season. Beginning in 2023, you're going to have this elevated event series. Uh, it's going to, We're going to be uh, having a, a schedule that goes from January to August, and then the fall is going to have these priority-type tournaments, uh, which will determine status. But kind of those big events, Rex, those legacy events that we're so accustomed to, whether it's Riviera, Bay Hill, Players' Championship, Memorial, like they're going to have the absolute best fields, at least the PGA Tour can now assemble, with the biggest purses, $20 million. Do you think that the PGA Tour, beginning in 2023, has gone far enough to satiate the stars in in making sure that the PGA Tour is the best place for them to play? I don't know if they've gone far enough yet, but I think they're, they're getting in that direction. They're moving in that direction. I talked to a member of the policy board the day after the final meeting of this year, so that would have been Tuesday of RSM week, and he, he told me I asked him specifically, like, what was the one thing from yesterday's meeting that sort of stood out to you? And he thought for a minute, and he goes, the ways that we're going to find to compensate the game's top players. So I think what we have right now, so we're talking about those magical 20 top players as defined by the PIP. You have the PIP payout, which is significant. I think. Can we stop calling down. this a social media contest? It's not a social media contest. It's not, please stop it's calling not even, it that. 
Not even close. Not even close. And I think I asked Justin Thomas about that last week. He gave a great answer. Go check it out. Um, it is not a social media content, but that's a significant amount of money just from the PIP. You also have the increased purses, as you pointed out. I think the Century Tournament of Champions has a $15 million purse, and the other 11 all have $20 million purses. Uh, the understanding is starting in 2024, these events will be limited fields. So you're probably looking at 78-man fields with pretty much guaranteed payouts. There will be a cut, but, I mean, you've got to play pretty bad to miss the cut and not get paid. And I think there's even more things, whatever those might be, on the horizon to make sure these top players are compensated. Are they going to get compensated the way they would if they made decided to make the jump to Project Wedge? No, probably not, because as Jay Monahan has said, Tiger Woods said this last week, it, it's a bidding war that – the PGA Tour cannot win. You're not going to win going up against the PIF. They have a limitless bucket of money. If they want to win, they're going to win. But you're going to make it a difficult enough decision for the top players now to at least have to think about it. Where, okay, I am making exponentially more money now on the PGA Tour versus two years ago. And I get to play the majors. I'm getting world ranking points. I can play the Ryder Cup. I can play the President's Cup. All of those legacy things that we talk about, I think they're sweetening the pot enough going forward that we will end up being able to be competitive. Is is the best thing for the future of the PJ Tour to have 78-player fields? I, I mean, that's essentially just like a bloated live field. Is it not? I mean, at least to, at least to me, and I did a story coming off of the BMW Championship about this, about like if if this is going to be what the future looks like is that a good thing i mean there's i think there's there's some at least some intrigue with with having a cut there's at least like a do or die nature i think something competitively is lost if it's it's kind of a 72 hole marathon instead of necessarily a 36 hole sprint just to ensure that you have some playing opportunities uh, on the weekend are you in are you in favor uh, of that model do you think that's actually going to resonate with golf fans i'm i'm a little unsure uh does it matter if you get the game's top players together at least 20 times a year well that, that wouldn't be right at least 17 times a year based on the model that we're going we're going to be using going forward isn't isn't it better now that they it was funny already talking are with, though like they, they already play these no not necessarily they, i, I they, think they play these gonna, tournaments 14 times a year all right you're adding you're adding a couple more well everyone everyone, be, everyone already everyone already plays Everyone already we'll be plays able to see it right out of the gates. We'll be able to see it like in this never happens. We'll be able to see it at Century. The, as defined by the PIP, all of the game's top players will be in Maui for the season opening event. That's very significant. Now, there's a but fundamental they kind of, debate. They kind of already were. Rory, Rory was the only player last year who skipped. Like, I, I think the, the Jordan, the JTs, the Xanders of the world, like they've kind of transformed that event. We're already been heading in that direction. I think what you're going to see Maybe. in 2023 is – you know the the heritage. I mean, the travelers already got a pretty a pretty good field. Um, the Wells Fargo always was like a natural spot for the game's top players to tune up. Uh, now for uh, the, the PGA Championship, back then it used to be uh, the, the players when they would uh, kind of be gearing up for like they're already they're already playing these events. Now it's just kind of solidified. Uh, it is solidified, which is if you're a sponsor, certainly if you're a TV network. I mean, we can speak to that personally. At, you want to be able to know for a fact that all right, the top players are going to be here. And that makes it easier for you to package that product, sell that product, and be a profitable business. And that's essentially what this has done. The 78-person field thing is a fundamental philosophical change. And you're right. That's a whole different podcast that we'll have to get into next year. And I get vastly different answers. Like Some players I talk to are like, nope, you know, they would never go – to 78 players at the memorial you know jack wants 120 man field that's what he that's what he's always had 
So I don't know if this is this is written in stone. I, I think the PGA Tour has an idea where they want to go. There are still a lot of things that have to, to move. There are a lot of bits and pieces that need to fall in place. I think what this really comes down to, though, is it's a fundamental change in how the PGA Tour wants to do business. In the past, in, over the course of yeah. my career, over the course of the PGA Tour, it's been playing opportunities for the members. And that means the Tiger Woods members and apparently what the Saudis call mediocres, whoever is at, at the tail end of that. Number 125 on the money list and and everyone had a vote and this was all about getting playing opportunities for one and 125 and now i I don't think that's going to be the case going forward this is about making sure those 20 players as defined by the pip are taken care of making sure they come together on a regular basis at the same events and the pga tour can sell that more effectively which is why the final chapter rex of this podcast is Mm. i would call it the immediate future for both the PGA Tour and Live Golf. There's no doubt that we are at the end of what is clearly the most contentious, acrimonious year in men's professional golf history. Do you anticipate that same sort of animosity next year? Because as, as you just mentioned, I think it's a great point and some, a point that we've touched on throughout 2022. There's going to be some hurt feelings, Rex, moving forward. There's going to be hurt feelings with players who are going to feel marginalized by a lot of these changes by the PJ tours that are just attempts to satiate the stars, to make sure they play on the PJ tour. There's going to be hurt feelings among tournament directors and sponsors. We've already seen Honda, the longest running title sponsor on the PJ tour bow out of its South Florida event. Certainly uh, other tournament directors are going to feel slighted by these scheduled changes as well with ongoing litigation with the world ranking debate, not yet settled. There's clearly going to be, uh, more vitriol pass between these two bodies as well. I, I guess, I guess the open-ended question is, what are you, what are you expecting for next year? Uh, more of the same. I, I mean, there's no way. I mean, I wish I could sit here and say right, what Tiger and Roy have done, opening the door, saying that there is an opportunity to talk. I, I wish I could say that's that's the first step towards some sort of reconciliation. Is probably not the right word, but coexistence is what we keep coming back to, and. And I'd like to be able to say that, but again, they have laid down a pretty heavy caveat. It's it's you have to fire your CEO and you need to drop the lawsuit. And I don't think there's motivation on the on the project website at all to do this I, because there's no reason for them to do that right now. Either fire Greg or stop the lawsuit. They sort of have the momentum. And as far as the sort of the vitriol, it, it, it it's a story that'll be up on GolfChannel.com to, uh, this week. And it, I essentially kind of dug into. How this is, and this goes back to how this is thrown a wedge into the game. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that at all. That, that, that sort of came throwing together. Throwing a project wedge into this game. Throwing a project wedge. That sort of came together on its own. Um, and how it sort of fractured relationships. And certainly, reading the story last week, Rory talking about his relationship with Sergio Garcia and, and sort of pulling back the curtain. I mean, these were two very, very good friends. And you can kind of, you can kind of go down the line. And point out these guys used to be very very close. They were they were neighbors. They they practiced together. They played together, and now they aren't anymore. And it's for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I I thought it was interesting. And one of the people I interviewed for the story was Joel Damon, and I asked him why do you think there is this animosity? And he goes, it's probably a lot of jealousy that those guys on the other side that went to Project Wedge are getting paid a lot of money to play a little bit of golf. And he goes, and yes, human nature is you're going to look at that person and wonder why didn't I do that. And I think that's only going to continue in that wedge, but I'm bump is only going to continue to wedge through the game. Brought it home. Wow. See that? There was there was a lot to digest there. I, I don't I don't think it Rex is going to be quite as contentious in twenty twenty three 
as we had in 2022, just because I, I think there is going to be a renewed focus on the golf and the competition. There's not going to be this slow trickle of is he going, is he not going, that sort of week in and week out drama that, that really overshadowed uh, all the tournament play on the PGA Tour. The, the, the live players are going to go play their schedule. The PGA Tour players are going to play those the, that schedule. And then the best players in the world, at least we are anticipating, will see each other four times a year at the major championships. It's hard to imagine any sort of live player is teeing it up. Uh, the European Ryder Cup team, especially considering the Roy McIlroy, Sergio Garcia comments uh, that, that came out in the Irish independent story. So I, I think in that aspect, it'll be a renewed focus on the golf. For the PGA Tour, that's fine. It's kind of business as usual. For live golf, there's going to be a, a brighter spotlight on the actual product. Because if you don't have a TV deal, if you don't yet have world ranking points, if you don't have corporate mm-hmm. sponsorships, like, and this is the product that you're offering, it, it needs to stand on its own. It can't just be the disruption. It can't just be something new and edgy. Mm-hmm. It's a team competition now. Like, I'm very curious to see how that pans out and whether 54 holes of tournament golf uh, is is appealing in the marketplace because it is uh, certainly a departure from the norm. Is there anything else, Rex, you wanted to get in there about the number one storyline from us uh, at GolfChannel.com? It was certainly a story unlike any other. You think it'll be the number one storyline next year? I'm going to yes. say yes. yes. I do. I can't imagine. If it's not, I'm going to be a very, very happy man. But, yes, I think we're sitting in this exact, exact same chair. But I did want to ask, since I'm, I'm following you up to Connecticut tomorrow, I'm flying up on Wednesday, to, to, you and I are sort of going to tag out. Do I need to know anything? What, what do I need to know about going to the mothership? Uh, it's beautiful. So uh, this is the first time I've done a studio show. I've been co-hosting Golf Today for the last couple of days. Uh, first time I've been in the NBC Sports headquarters uh, in two years. And it is an incredible building. I mean, it's like the it's like our old Golf Channel studios on steroids. Uh, it's it's beautiful. Um, the, the I mean, this is the best of the best. I mean, this is a behemoth of a company, beautiful building, Stanford, Connecticut. I uh, haven't done all that much sightseeing. Uh, I can vouch for the downtown uh, full-service Marriott as being very nice with a terrific concierge le- uh, level. Uh, Darmy, uh, well done to you. I do hope you win Employee of the Month, as was voted on by me this morning. Uh, Rex, I'll Ooh. keep this chair warm for you uh, in the dressing room. Uh, but thank you guys for listening to not just this podcast, the number one storyline of the year podcast. It's voted on by us on Golf Channel. I've been listening all year uh, on wherever you are receiving your podcast. I'm sure Rex will be sprinkling in a few more throughout the month of December before. Boy, we tee it up once again the first week of January, the Century Tournament of Champions. The Project Wedge, of course, does not be, uh, resume its schedule until mid-February. But Rex, something tells me. We're going to have some more news to digest over the next couple of weeks. And we'll be here for you folks on GolfChannel.com and wherever you get your podcasts.